I was talking with a friend, La Sarmiento, who many of you know, one of the teachers on our teachers' council, and she had just been given a gift. Someone had gone to a retreat, a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat, and the gift was a watch. And at the center of the watch was the words, it's, and then at every 15-minute interval it says, now. And that's all you can read on the watch is, it's now, it's now. (laughs) Doesn't matter. She it's the best gift. It's always now. <laughs> so I love that. I think we should all have those watches. I went to uh, Philadelphia last weekend, did a day-long workshop, and one of the women was describing her dilemma, how she would sit and meditate, and eventually she'd come into a sense of now and, you know, relax and, and sense some of what we talk about, the kind of presence that's so sweet. Uh, maybe doesn't last that long, but really touching into something sacred. And then she described how she'd go to work and there wasn't a remnant of it. She goes to work and it's absolutely, she's in her role of, whether she's at work at home being a mom or as an, you know, an employer of many people actually, she's a manager, all about the role of making sure I get things done, making sure I do things right, making sure, you know, that kind of thing. She says, barely a moment of any, any relationship between the experience when she's sitting and that. The sadness about that. The sadness about that. And I felt like she described, well, a predicament, a kind of compartmentalization that many of us find on how we can touch something that's really, really precious, a sense of love or presence or openness, and find how in other situations every, all of our associations have us contract back into this doing state where we're kind of anxious and worried and on our way somewhere. Pema Chodron calls this the big squeeze. It's our life predicament where we, each of us each day gets caught in this conditioning to be identified as something smaller, a a self that's worried or anxious or on our way. And yet at other times we wouldn't even be here if we didn't intuit something far more mysterious and vast and, and timeless that's really the what we are. There's a, an understanding in spiritual life that it's absolutely natural to get caught in that conditioning, that our, our identity contracts, our sense of who we are. And there's also this possibility of waking up. This is uh, Angela Celestius, I think I'm saying it right. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. So we can take the word God and have it be God or awareness or spirit. That awareness, that's very expression is love and joy is everywhere. This awareness is right here always. And yet we can't enjoy that, take refuge in that, if we're contracted into a solid self, self-centeredness. It gets in the way. So in, in some of the um, Buddhist jargon in the West we call that selfing, that we get caught in this identity that obscures 
that which most matters to us. And everyone here knows it um, in a very instinctive way that when we're self-occupied, when, we're, when our thoughts are all circling around me and what I need to do and what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you that's getting in the way of my life, we know that it obscures something that is precious to us. It's a narrowed focus. It's like we're living in this cocoon of thoughts that just shrinks our whole world. Some of you might remember this, this description of a young man who asked God how long a million years was to him. And God replies, Well, a million years to me is just like a single second in your time. Then the young man asked God what a million dollars is to him. God replies, Well, a million dollars to me is just like a single penny to you. And then the young man got up his courage and asked God, Can I have one of your pennies? And God smiled and replied, Certainly, just a second. (laughs) The narrowed focus. You know, in India they say when a pickpocket sees a saint, he or she sees the saint's pocket. And we know what that's like, that when we're fixated, when our life is all about what can I check off the list or how do I, you know, set somebody straight, we're living in a little world. We know that. There's an anonymous saying that goes, Who is it that suffers? He who finds fault. It keeps us small. The word worry, the Anglo-Saxon root of the word worry is to strangle or to choke. You know, and you can sense that, that when we move around and there's that self-centeredness of what's going to go wrong for me, what's going to go wrong in my life, what's around the corner that will be too much to handle, it's like being strangled. We're not free to really breathe. So the spiritual path can be understood as waking up from that small sense of identity where we're, where it's self-centered, self-absorbed, there's a, a story of a me that's moving through time on his or her way somewhere. Waking up out of that trance and rediscovering really this larger remembering, this mystery and love that's here. And what I'd like to talk about tonight is how we wake up by relating to the conditioning, the what's going on in a wise way. And there's two wings, classically, described two wings of the bird, that guide us in how to relate to what's going on right in this moment, that free us from that trance, that wake us up out of that small self-identity. So that's what I'd like to explore. And the two wings are described in a very simple way as seeing what's true right now, what's going on right in this moment, and then holding that with care. Seeing what's true, like what is happening right here, and then responding or regarding what we see with a quality of kindness. So those are the the wings that we're going to explore. And what I hope you'll see is these two elements of recognizing what's going on and then regarding with kindness are absolutely inseparable. 
that it said that the bird needs two wings to fly. You can't just have one if you really want to be free. And it gets very clear if you're dealing with a difficult emotion, it's not good enough just to see it, there has to be kindness. And it's not good enough just to be kind because you might not really be connecting with what's going on. Does that make sense? Okay, the two wings. So the first wing really is this inquiry, what's happening, what's true? And in the first wing it takes real courage because there's this this intention to, in an unwavering way, really investigate what's going on. The reason I say courage is we have strong conditioning to not want to hang out with what's here if it's unpleasant. So it takes a kind of commitment, and the commitment, I have found, comes out of interest. And interest is a deep word, that we have an interest in truth, and it's, we're more interested in knowing what reality is we're more interested in that deep question of what is this really about, this, this existence, than we are in staying comfortable. So it's courageous. Some of you might have heard um, that, and this has come out in recent weeks more publicly, that uh, Carl Jung kept what was called a red book. How many of you know about Carl Jung's red book? Can I see by hands? A smattering. Okay. This is a journal that he, on and off for 16 years, he worked on. And it was pretty kept secret. His intention in working on it was to remove the wall between his rational mind and the rest of his psyche and to find out what was true, what was there. And he used active imagination which is a form of meditation, of, of really kind of putting aside certain rational thought processes and really inviting the way the psyche expresses itself to express. And it was quite a psychedelic voyage for him through his own mind. And he described it as potentially ruinous because the energies were so strong that they could take over. But also he said that all my creative works, all my creative activity has come from this exploration. Okay, so, every, so this brilliance and genius and helpfulness to humanity came out of the way that he asked that question, what is true to his own psyche? The themes in the, in the Red Book really were losing his soul. He had a midlife crisis, like many. And then through much relating to his inner life, finding it again, and in that losing and finding a tremendous amount of wisdom. Now here's what I found interesting, is that after his death the Red Book was held for 25 years in the vault of a Swiss bank and then after that it was carefully guarded by his family and there was a huge controversy as to whether it would get published. Okay? And so what you have going are these, these different pulls and at one, on one side was the pull of this fear of having the contents and process of this man's psyche public and the fear was that he'd be, it would be misunderstood and the few people that had taken a look at it said that, that people would read it and think he was psychotic. In fact, if he had been his own therapist he would have classified himself as psychotic. 
So that was one level, that there's this, this fear of, um, of releasing it. And because if you read what I've heard about the contents, it describes him falling in love and later realizing it was his sister and his active imagination that he was in love with. It has him dealing with the demons and the gods. He's at one point eating the liver of a little child huge, massive forces of aggression and all the different play of all the energies. And so what's interesting to me is that if his attitude, if Carl Jung's attitude towards his own psyche had been something's wrong with what I'm experiencing, I shouldn't feel aggression, I shouldn't feel passion, I shouldn't feel hatred, anger, greed. If he had had that attitude the whole inquiry would not have happened and he would have not then been able to mine the treasure trove, as he put it. In other words, it was through paying attention without adding that layer of something's wrong with this that there was a powerful transformation in his psyche. I bring this up because in the first wing, what is true? There's a tendency to add what we call the second arrow which is, what I'm seeing shouldn't be here or it's bad. So a critical, essential part of this investigation of truth is to notice when we have added on this layer, and it's very, very subtle, of what I'm paying attention to is a bad thing, it shouldn't be here, I should be fixing it, getting rid of it, burying it, hiding it. You get the idea? This was the opposite of how Carl Jung did the Red Book. He's invited it. We have a very strong conditioning. In Buddhism there's a description of a whole chain of unfolding that happens as we go into reactivity. And first there's unpleasantness and there's a sense of, oh, this is unpleasant. And then there's an evaluation that says, oh, this is bad, this shouldn't be happening, I'm going to push it away. And then we either have aversion, pushing away, or we grasp on, if it's pleasant. So part of this first wing is seeing that. Seeing the reactivity and this willingness to stay. Because we tend to have an idea of how things should be. Most of us are living our lives with this notion of what kind of inner state we should be having. Relaxed, open, selfless not greedy, I mean, that's not good, you know, not aggressive. You know, we have these ideas of how we should be. And when we're not that way, something's wrong. One of my favorite uh, church bulletins that you see in the front of a, as you drive by, sermon this morning, Jesus walks on the water. Sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. (laughs) So I like that. So one of the understandings as we begin to investigate our psyche, and by investigate I mean pay attention to what's actually happening here, is that it's not so personal. You know, Carl Jung, since I'm mentioning him tonight, talked about the collective collective unconscious. Well, the stuff that goes on in our psyche, if you think of a one-celled creature with a membrane, it extends to get food, it grasps on, it contracts against danger. I mean, that's our psyche's basically doing that. It's grasping on to things that might help it and it's pushing away things that won't in its mind. I remember at one conference I went to, they described it as the four Fs, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. 
So, that's it's it, and we take it very personally, you know, when we're the one that's fleeing or fighting or whatevering. It's interesting to remember that the brain is hardwired to generate an ongoing small signal of fear all the time to keep us vigilant, to, to keep us alert to make sure nothing bad's going to happen. And I've, a year or two I read that we wake up ten times a night, scan our environment quickly just to check for a threat and then go back to sleep. And if we don't have insomnia we don't remember that. But what, we're, what I'm saying is that we're kind of rigged to have a nervous system, right? And yet we take it personally, you know, I'm a nervous, uptight person. We don't like the nervousness we feel and we think it shouldn't be there. That's the second arrow. We might also find that we're always comparing ourselves to other people. I don't know, I was going to do a hand raise, but that's embarrassing, isn't it? (laughs) So I won't do that, but... Daniel Goleman in Social Intelligence in his book says that when we're not facing a life or death issue our default position of the mind is to compare ourselves to others and just to check and see where we are in the pecking order. That we're we're designed to do that. It's part of our mammal self, you know, to compare ourselves and see where we should be. And we find that we're never quite where we want to be. I mean, we're herd animals. That's what we do. One friend says, to be human is to feel inferior, (laughs) because we're always comparing. Henny Youngman says, my father was the town drunk. Now, usually that's not so bad, but New York City, you know. (laughs) So, So you get the idea, it's all relative. It's interesting, in the Buddhist text they say comparing mind is the last, one of the last of the kind of elements of ignorance or confusion to go that there's a certain narcissism that is just always comparing. So, we're designed to deceive. I'm I'm giving these examples because we take it personally and add the second arrow, so if we can begin to remember, we are designed to deceive to protect ourselves. You know, just the way viruses camouflage themselves and other creatures pretend, you know, the fish that have that eye painted on their rear end so if something bites it'll bite maybe their rear end. I mean that's not great, I know, but but it's better than their face, you know. So we're designed to deceive. You know, dear Abby got a, um, a bunch of letters that she said she was at a loss to answer and one of them said, Dear Abby, I've suspected that my husband has been fooling around and when confronted with the evidence He denied everything and said it would never happen again. (laughs) The point of this, we're talking about the really the wing of paying attention that says what is true. And in order to see what is true, if we add a layer of what's going on here shouldn't be happening, then we cannot begin to investigate and really find out what's there. Back to Carl Jung, his motivation in investigating, and this is the same as our motivation, is to bring into consciousness what's not conscious. Whatever is out of our awareness, whatever we're not willing to connect with, controls us. Our identity is hitched to whatever we're pushing away. 
I mentioned last week a friend of mine, when he works with children, he brings out this, um, this Chinese finger trap, and some of you might be familiar with it, that when you pull away on, you put your two fingers in the end of this little funnel, and if you pull away it tightens and your fingers can't get out. If you push the fingers towards each other, in other words, you don't pull away, it, oh, it loosens up and you're easily freed. We only become free when we're willing to go towards and contact without resistance, without grasping, the truth of what's here. Ajahn Sumedho, who's an American-born monk, has the phrase, it's like this, which I think is a wonderful phrase. He said that when you're having an argument with reality, like it shouldn't be here, this is bad, something's wrong, just, it's like this. It's an acknowledgement of truth. And it cuts through that added layer, that second arrow. And when we do that, when we say, it's like this, and contact what's there, it frees the energy of the unlived life. It lets what we've been pushing away be in awareness, and that energy is available to us and we're no longer identified. We're free to rest in awareness and this life can play out freely. This uh, first arrow, just as a kind of to maybe say just a few more things, as I mentioned before, the energy behind it is a sincere interest in truth. And one of the tools that helps us in, in this uh, first wing is just to name what we're noticing. Fear, it's like this. Or sadness, it's like this right now. Or jealousy, okay, it's like this. You know how the shaman put it, that if it's by naming something that you release its power. And its power is that you're identified with it. When you name something, that in you which is aware of it is no longer identified with it. You are inhabiting your mindfulness and what's there is just part of the phenomena that you're aware of. It doesn't define you, it doesn't limit you. So this is really the mechanism of mindfulness that frees us recognizing. So let's just do a brief reflection on this first wing and then uh, we'll bring in the second wing. And as I often do with you, I'm going to invite you to, to pause and take a moment because it's such a beautiful practice to sense this as a pause, to invite yourself to come home into this moment as if you were looking at your watch and saying, oh, it's now, it's right now. And as you arrive, you might sense if there's something uh, difficult in your life going on that brings up an emotional reaction. Something that you'd be journaling about in your red book if you had one. You can imagine that you're writing down or reflecting on a situation and what it brings up 
Maybe it brings up fear or anger, being defensive, mistrusting. So just honestly noticing. And check your attitude. Check if there's a second arrow of an attitude that is on some level evaluating this shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't be reacting. This is, implies a bad thing about me. Something's wrong. So a challenging situation and sensing what it brings up and what your attitude is. Is there a second arrow of making yourself wrong? So part of this wing of what's true is noticing the second arrow, noticing, oh, so not only am I angry about so-and-so doing this, but I'm making myself wrong for being angry. There's layers. Now try this out. What would happen if you let go of the second arrow and just said, okay, it's like this? If there was just interest in finding out more about what's true, Okay, there's sadness, or there's anger, or insecurity. Very gently, but firmly, it's like this. Sense what your experience of yourself is, if you're just naming what's happening without the second arrow, without making it wrong. What's your experience of yourself? Can you sense a little more space? Now we're going to come back to this, but just take a few full breaths. And when you're ready, open your eyes. So that's the first wing. And to truly bring presence to something, you need the second wing too which is not just saying it's like this, but a quality of kindness. Because without the kindness, on some level, there's a contracting away or a pushing away or a not warmly receiving what's happening. The pivotal piece is the kindness. It said that the heart of Buddhism is compassion, and the heart of compassion is compassion towards ourselves. And this isn't like a narcissistic compassion, like, oh, poor me, you know, that kind of thing at all. It's a genuine tenderness towards the realness of this experience that's going on. It's just tenderness. And it's not limited to ourselves. When we're tender towards ourselves, that tenderness just holds life. This wing of compassion, this wing of kindness, there's a certain alchemy, our process, by which it 
is aroused. And it's very straightforward that if you let yourself be touched directly by the experience that's difficult, the pain of the anger or the pain of the hurt or the pain of the fear, there's going to be a natural tenderness. If you add on anything that says, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this or other people feel this just as much or, you know, I need to change this, you won't have that alchemy of compassion. It'll get diluted. You have to feel directly, be touched directly by what's going on. So the challenge for most of us is that, again, the second arrow we say, oh, this shouldn't be happening and we don't let ourselves feel it and then there's no compassion. I remember for myself um, one of the first, I think it was the first Buddhist retreat I went to and I was having a, a pretty hard time and I was, not only was I down on myself, I was down on the way the retreat was. There was these window wars and some people wanted the windows open and some closed, so I was down on other people. There were, I had a sinus infection. I was, it was a, I was having a hard time. And early on in the retreat, somebody said something to the extent of the boundary to what you can accept is the boundary to your freedom. And that's been, a, that's been a, a line that's helped me through my life. The boundary to what you accept is the boundary to your freedom. And what I became very aware of was all the things, every, whatever I wasn't accepting, or there, wherever there was kind of some harshness towards myself or towards others, I was suffering. But the worst, of course, was the way I was down on myself. And I got very in touch with how I wasn't accepting parts of myself and then ask the question how long has it been that I've been living like this not accepting myself like this and when I realized how many life moments I had sacrificed to this kind of second arrow of I shouldn't be feeling this something's wrong with me I'm doing things wrong that was when the ouch moment happened I let myself feel the suffering of self-aversion and then there was compassion. I talked to a, a dear friend yesterday who described a similar thing that when she finally got how long she had been down on herself, her response was, oh, how sad. And it is sad. And yet that's a moment of freedom, of waking up when we realize that. That's worth everything. That's worth the price of admission when you can really get it like, oh, how sad because you really let yourself feel the pain of self-aversion. But we usually don't get to, oh, how sad, we stay in the storyline that we're believing what's wrong with us versus feeling the pain of being down on ourselves. So compassion arises, the second wing arises when we do the first wing, we notice what's happening and we let ourselves be touched by it, we feel it directly directly in our body. And as we do that, compassion begets more compassion because we gradually realize more and more the suffering of being at war with ourselves and how it's not necessary. I mean, if we can be awake to it, we don't have to be at war with ourselves. This is the poet Hafiz. He says, we have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. 
We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred tender vision of your beautiful heart. We are the ones that do it to ourselves. So the second wing is a commitment, and it comes out of wisdom to be kinder. It's really a commitment to be kinder towards ourselves. And I often use this gesture of the hand on the heart, touching the heart, to um, signify it. And if you just take a moment to close your eyes and put your hand on your heart and just feel the pressure there, the real practice is to then vary the pressure, move your hand around a little until you actually can sense a touch that's tender and that's communicating tenderness. And then just sense to yourself how many moments, how much time in your life is there any quality of offering a tenderness to the life that's here? How often do you regard this very life right here with tenderness? It's not our habit. I found that the most basic truths in healing and in spiritual freedom are the ones we forget most regularly. And one of those is that you can't love life if you don't love the life that's right here. We all want to love and be loved, and yet if it's not our habit to pause and send some intimacy with the life that's right here, some forgiveness, like giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, it's not our fault, we're conditioned so deeply to react, it's not our fault. Some tenderness when we're hurting, to just feel it and offer kindness, if that's not our habit, then we can't hold our life that way. So the two wings we're talking about tonight are to see what's happening within us because that's training around us. Many people, you know, say, well, isn't this like very self-centered, but not at all. If you... Carl Jung is an example of someone who his inner exploration allowed him to bring to the world so many gifts and he was of so much benefit to individuals because he had the courage and knew how to be with his own life. The first wing is to see what's happening right here, to pay attention. And the second wing is to be kind. A woman I worked with several years ago, uh, married, one child, um, had an affair it ended because the, the man she had an affair with was afraid for his marriage. It was one of those things where both of them got together because they were both you know, discontent in, in their marriages and not feeling met by their partners and uh, they commiserated and one thing led to the next. But it fell apart and then she went into uh, tremendous self-recrimination and self-hatred, kept everything a secret, which of course only created more distance in her marriage he felt it in some way he would react but he didn't know what he was reacting to and then she would resent him for making her hate herself so much 
their young son, eight years old, was confused, withdrawing, angry. So she was very aware of the self-aversion and everything she was feeling. And so her first step in, in working with herself was, was realizing how completely turned on herself she was. And I asked her the same question I shared with you earlier. I asked myself was, how long have you been living with this? this self-hatred. And for her it was way before the affair. I mean, she had felt that she was doing something wrong for as long as she could remember. And that was the ouch moment when she got that. That's when she started weeping, when she realized as long as she could remember, on some level she was not enough, she was doing something wrong. And I sometimes think of it as that we be, when we sense the shape of our incarnation and really register how many moments have, have been handed over to this habit of being down on ourselves, how much life we haven't been able to live because of that, how many moments we haven't been able to appreciate another person or beauty or just play. Then there's a sadness. I think of it as a soul sadness because we really get there's this grief for this life. So that's what happened to her. She had that ouch moment and then there was some compassion towards herself, just that, okay, hurting, hurting, you know, just feeling that. And that's when she began to be able to investigate. That's when the first wing kicked in. She began to look at, well, what's really going on in here? And for her, what was going on was a sense of, as she started naming it, you know, what really drove her to the affair was a sense of being alone, and that she would never feel loved and that she would never feel happy and she started naming it, won't feel happy, won't feel loved, can't feel close and then she started feeling that and there was this emptiness and this ache and she really got it. It was a sense of dying, that she was dying and grasping onto life. This was her way of grasping onto life. And let me just say, this isn't an excuse. This isn't to say, oh, you were dying, go, yes, have an affair. It's not like that. It's just the wing of truth, what was really going on. She felt like she was dying, there was a grasping. She was able, when she could sense that dying, to again put her hand on her heart and just feel that purity of, okay, dying, sad for that, sad for that. And she would pay attention and what that part in her that was dying most needed was simply to be seen and that somebody was caring. And so she, her message to herself was, I'm here. I found that for many people, just being able to let the parts of ourselves know I'm here, because for so many of us we didn't have a parent that was there that could actually see and care. To say I'm here is part of a healing process. So that's what she would do for herself. And she did it over and over. Every time the self-recrimination would come up or every time the sense of I'll never be loved, feeling of dying, I'm here, I care. Gradually she found that she was more and more resting in the awareness, the one that was saying, I care, I'm here. In other words, her identity had shifted from the I'll never be loved bad person to the awareness that was aware of that. And this shift in identity is at the heart of the path of freedom. This shift in identity is 
where we go from that very solid sense of self that is blocking out the sense of God and sacred and love and joy to an awareness where light can flow through. God whose love and joy are everywhere can't come and visit you unless you aren't there. So for her, there was a shift in identity that that old self wasn't so solid, so there. She was more at home in who she was and that, that allowed her to communicate with her husband and share what had gone on for her, the loneliness and the regret. Just to say that it's not, there's not a rule on one should always confess what one has done to make things okay. It's not like that, but there's also an understanding that our intimacy with ourself and with others can only go as deep as our willingness to share truths. So if we want to be intimate with ourselves, we have to face the truth of what's going on inside us. And if we want to be intimate with someone else, we need to face truth with another person. So she was able to do that. In this case, it really opened the way to a much more alive and caring relationship. Now, I started tonight talking about our predicament, the big squeeze, and that we so often get caught in the conditioning. And it might not be as extreme as the self-recrimination and the feeling like I'm dying, but we get caught in a smaller identity than what we are. And if you review today, you'll notice that big swaths of today were probably inside some idea of a self, some story of a self that was less than what you intuit you can be. The pathway of waking up as this woman found in a very extreme situation, as we can find over and over again, are these two wings of saying, what is really happening? Can we pause? This is the trick. Can we pause and say, what is really going on? And can we, the gesture against the hand on the heart, can we be willing to be tender? Instead of the second arrow, I shouldn't feel this, I need to change this, can we be tender? Like to practice a little, practice the two wings together. And again, let this be an invitation to sense a pause and to sense your intention right now, the intention behind the two wings. The intention of the first wing is interest, to find out what's true. The intention of the second wing is to offer care, a real commitment to caring. So as you did before, just to choose an area of your life that could benefit from these wings of wise attention. Somewhere where you feel you get stuck, where there's a strong reaction.
And as uh, described with Jung in the Red Book, sense uh, a willingness to investigate, to begin to name what you're aware of that gets brought up by this situation. And you might sense, well, what's the worst part of this? Or what am I most afraid of? Or what am I believing about myself? Or what am I believing about how another is relating to me? And see if it's possible without adding that second arrow, just letting it be as it is. It's like this. Okay, there's fear, or there's insecurity, or there's believing that I failed, or believing that another isn't treating me right, they don't care. Hear your own voice whisper, naming what's true, just naming your experience. And as you do, if it helps you to put your hand on your heart, then do so. But see if you can name and notice what's going on, moment to moment, with as much kindness as possible. So if what you're naming is fear, then pause and sense that with that tenderness of a touch or the tenderness energetically that you're offering that to what you see. And if it's hard to offer it yourself, sense that there is an energy that's kind in this universe that can help to offer it, or maybe somebody that loves you For this woman, the, the words, I'm here, I care about this suffering. There may be some words that express that second wing of caring. Perhaps as you sit here you feel cut off or numb or tired, then that's what you name. You can practice these two wings with whatever is here. You might just say, oh, feeling dull or numb, it's okay. Or maybe there's physical discomfort right now, just to name that, unpleasant, ache, tired. And still that tenderness directed inward. Sensing who you are when there's just a noticing of what's happening, of what's true, and a kindness that's holding it. Who are you? 
The poet Haviz, we have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. May these wings of wise attention, of seeing what's true and holding these lives with compassion, awaken us to the truth of what we are, to the loving presence that's our nature. May all beings be blessed to realize this loving presence as their true nature. May all beings be blessed to have their lives be an expression of this truth. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.